Good morning, everyone. My name is Preston Pitts, and I'm an elder here at Common Ground. And I am honored to be with you this morning as we continue our Say What series. I just love to say that, sorry. But, uh, and, uh, and we have something exciting to really talk about today. But to get us started, I'm going to ask you a question. And the question is, does anybody know who the Borg is, B-O-R-G. We got a few hands going up, not many, so mostly perplexed faces. So if any of you watch the Star Trek series, sorry, but there, there's a reoccurring group that comes on as enemies of them, and, and it's a cybernetic organism, and what they do is they assimilate people into it into what they call the collective. So they assimilate people, and they are, once they're assimilated, they begin to think and act like the Borg. Now, why in the world would I start out talking to you about that? We have no idea. And it's because today, we're going to be reminded that we live in a world where we are constantly be trying to... The world is trans constantly trying to conform us to it or assimilate us into it. And so that's kind of what the Borg does. This is what the world is trying to do to us. But I remind us that we are the church. Perfect songs that we just saw, we just played. And we are the church. Uh, Derek used a big word a few weeks ago and latched onto it, and I, and I know Don's going to correct me on how to say it properly, but ecclesia or ecclesia, and, uh, and what that means is, as the church, we're a people set apart, and we are set apart for God, and we, today, we're going to talk about that we are a people that are holy, set apart for God in an ungodly world. And what does that look like? And what does that mean for us? And so today, to, one thing I want to get started with to me would be a verse that I love, and it's, first, it's Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. And if you can read that, he has delivered us, he meaning God the Father, from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we live in a dark world, but spiritually we've been transformed. We've been transferred to the kingdom of Jesus. And what that means is that when you're in a kingdom, you have a king. Jesus is our king. He is the one that we should have our allegiance to. He is the one that we should look to for authority and guidance in our life. But we are physically living here. So there's a conflict. And today we're going to talk about that conflict. And we're going to turn to the book of Daniel. And we're going to go into chapters 1 and chapter 3. And in your seat Bible, it's page 821. If you're opening your Bible, Daniel's in the prophecy section a little to the right of center, right after Ezekiel. 
our table of contents, I highly recommend. And with that, as we go to Daniel, we're going to go chapter 1, verses 3 through 6 to start out with. But I'm going to give you a little background. So what we're talking about are four young Jewish boys. And these four boys were captured by the Babylonians. Typically, when you're captured, you're enslaved. You're put into slavery for the country that conquered you. And uh, so what's happened to them is, think about it, they've been taken from country, their family, and they're in this pagan world, totally different culture than the Jewish culture. And so they're trying to get grounded. However, we're going to look and see what happens to them and how they respond to it. So I'm going to read verses 3 through 6. Then the king, and this king is Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, he commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good parents, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. So all of a sudden, look at this transformation for them. A slave, but now put into the king's palace. And in the king's palace, they're going to be trained in the, in the Babylonian culture, languages, and they are going to get, they get to participate in the king's delicacies, his foods, food and wine. I'm not thinking 15 or 17-year-old. Oh, interesting. That's the age, too. I apologize. I meant to say that. They're at the age when this happened. They're age 15 to 17 is what they're estimated to be. So all of you, you young people, never underestimate how God can use you in a most mighty and powerful way. As we go through their lives, it's magnificent how God works through them. <clears throat> so they are receiving all of these benefits they're going to be educated for three years, way much more education than even, even the average Babylon, a Babylonian. So is King Nebuchadnezzar such a bad guy after all? Well, we're going to dig deeper and see. So we're going to turn to chapter, verse 7 and see if King Nebuchadnezzar has a different agenda. And the, and verse 7, and the chief of the eunuchs, gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Now, the king renamed them. Seems pretty innocent at first, until you go a little deeper with that. So if you actually looked at the boys' Hebrew names, those names all had a reference to the nature and character of God. A reminder of who they were as Jewish boys honoring their God 
and the nature and character of God that they wanted to reflect. Then you look at the Babylonian names that they were given. Each one of those names honored a particular Babylonian god. And it's just a coincidence, I'm sure, but the name of that Babylonian god and the way it was described in the name they were given was similar to the character and the nature of what was assigned to their Hebrew names to God. So what is really going on here? Assimilation. The king's objective is that these boys would begin to act like Babylonians, think like Babylonians, begin to live like Babylonians, and to forget their country and to forget their God. And through what he was, the king was doing, he wanted them in particular to look to the king for all the benefits and the beauty of life and not their God. So we have a real transformation going on here where the, these boys are being in, trying to, the king is trying to indoctrinate them into this world. Now we, as God's people, living in the world, so how do we guard against us being assimilated or being conformed to the world? And as we study a little bit here, we're going to see how these boys chose to resist this. So turn with me to verse 8 and 9. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Verse 9, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Verse 9 is there to tell us, through God's intervention, they were actually granted their request. Key word to me here is in verse 8, resolved. Resolved here means that they basically gave their fullness of their heart to this issue. Effectively, they are saying they are resolved in their heart not to be defiled. Another way to say that, and which is a good lesson for us, they resolved in their heart they were going to serve their God and not the king when it conflicted with the things of God. And so they would not defile themselves. And the example they, they, that they chose to do was with the king's food and wine. Why the food and wine? Because the food and wine represents fellowship. And it was happening daily to them. So this luxurious food that the average person would never get to partake of was given to them daily, trying to be a daily enticement to them to remember all the goodness is coming from me, your king. They wanted to be excused from that. And so they denied themselves that. And so that is another part of the lesson for us is remember that we may be called to deny ourselves things that the world is trying to attract us with. And so 
as, as God gave them this challenge and they responded, they responded with, I'm dedicated to God and I'm willing to deny myself things because I don't want to be conformed and lose my identity with my God. Now, I love Old Testament and then I love to kind of contrast it or really maybe reinforce it with New Testament. So this just spoke to me that I was reminded of Romans, Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. So if you'll read with me on that, if y'all can see that. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, these two verses can be a sermon unto themselves. Two points, though, I want to make sure we understand. What Paul is telling us in verse 1 is we are to give ourselves fully to God. As we've accepted Christ, we understand what Christ has done for us. Give ourselves fully to him. Live for him. And at times, we may have to make sacrifices, not only of just ourselves, but of the way we live to honor God in everything that we do. And the other part is reminding us that in this evil age, it tries to get us to conform to it and said, don't be conformed because by the renewing of your mind, you can stand against that. And the key to re renewing our mind is because we are of Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will teach us, guide us, strengthen us, especially when we're in the scripture, to renew our mind so we have a right perspective of who we are and we have a right perspective of who Christ is. Therefore, we are strengthened. We have a right mindset, a right heart, a right foundation when the world comes to entice us or to try to conform us because we are God's people. <clears throat> now, coincidentally, I love that word when you're dealing with spiritual matters and something piques your interest or something comes to your mind. It's not a coincidence. God is working. So I'm at the end of this message. I'm, I've been working on it. And I turn on Pilgrim Radio, and there's a pastor there talking. And he happens to refer to this verse. And he's saying, I realize the world has been sucking me in to a point where I'm ashamed of myself. And he said it was social media. Through social media that he started innocently with, he got sucked into conversations, engagements, and activities, things that took him deeper and deeper until he realized, whoa, what am I doing? Especially when he looked at some of his responses. So I mentioned that just as an example because what we're talking about is through the power of the Holy Spirit resisting the things of the world that could lead us away from God 
lose our testimony or whatever. That's just an example. So the real question for us is what are we resolved about in our heart to stay away from or to ask for God to help us stay away from and not be defiled? <clears throat> so as we go through here, I want to make sure I emphasize one thing because I'm saying don't conform to the world, don't be assimilated into the world. But we are not to isolate. We are to truly be an active people. We're God's ambassadors on this earth. We are the church, and we're to go out, and we're to live a life that our, testimony, our living testimony is a living testimony to God. We're to be engaged in our neighborhoods, our schools, and sports, or whatever it is. But in the midst of that, we give great testimony to God. So I'm not saying isolate. In fact, when you look at the four, the four boys, I keep calling them four boys, just it's easier than the names that are a little complicated for me to say. And, uh, but the four, we find that they were active in the Babylonian culture. They were active in work. They were even active in the king's, uh, um, uh, he was, they had great authority in the kingdom of the Babylonians. So when you look at their life, you find out that they were even serving with astrologers and magicians and people that had uh, sorcerers, yet they remained pure and they were, their testimony brought, excuse me, glory to God. And we'll see that even more in just a few minutes. And in that testimony, um, it, it really was a, a beautiful thing because it reminds us that in this world, we not only can survive as, as Christians, not only survive, but thrive. And we can make a tremendous impact on the world. So as we close on chapter one, chapter one and go to chapter three, I'm going to read verses 17 through 20. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel. Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them, say what? <laughs> Ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were all this in his kingdom. I want to point out two things in these verses. Verse 17, as for these youths, what does it say? This is where you participate. God gave them learning and skill. So God gave them these learnings and these skills. I say that because I am convinced when we're aligned with God's will 
When we're actively pursuing God as first in our life, Jesus' first love, when we're on a mission, he will equip us to do whatever is needed to be done. And now that's even magnified in verse 20. Ten times greater than all the magicians and enchanters. The reason those are mentioned is because they're the most educated. They're the most advanced. They serve high capacity in Babylonian kingdom. When I first read this, and I've read it numerous times, when I've read it for a long time, ten times better. In my mind, it was ten times better than the group that was with them. If you remember, there were a few people called together to get this special treatment. That could have been 10 people, 20, 50, or maybe 100. No, 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. That means all the seasons, all the aged, all the advanced, 10 times greater than them. God's supernatural power at work. So I just encourage us. God works on our behalf when we work with him. Then, to close in chapter 1, the... Uh, um, the, the key here is that now as we close chapter 1, the, uh, we realize that the four are, have God's favor. They have the king's favor. And as we read with other parts, they've been elevated in the, king's, um, in the kingdom of the Babylonians with authority. So keep that in mind as we go to chapter 3. Now, totally change the circumstances in 3, so... Move, move your mind with me as we go here. In chapter 3, I'm going to just summarize some of this. What we find is King Nebuchadnezzar has conceived of a great idea. His idea is to build a statue. This statue is 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide, made out of gold. I'm going to backtrack on us a little bit to give you a foundation of the significance of this statue. We skipped over chapter 2. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And in that dream, which was interpreted by Daniel, he had a dream of a statue of a man that, rep that was really made up of different types of materials. And each material represented a different kingdom. It started with the head, and the head was gold. And it was revealed that the head was Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. As you went down the body of the statue in the dream, in the vision, each one represented a new kingdom that was going to succeed the Babylonians. Now at the time, King Nebuchadnezzar praised Daniel and his God for revealing this futuristic event and especially the fact that he acknowledged that Babylonians were the, the head and they were the most superior kingdom. But it's believed over time his pride got the better of him. And he came to the conclusion, wait a minute, we are superior. My gods are superior to the Hebrew God. I'm not going to let this Hebrew God replace us and put us aside and allow other kingdoms to come about. So he builds this idol made of what? Purely of gold 
which represents the Babylonian Empire and his mind, its continued existence and its superiority over every other kingdom. So we have a situation where we have this arrogant king and he is mindset to build and advance the kingdom of the Babylonians. So keeping that in mind, I'm going to summarize for you verses 1 through 12 of chapter 3. So the king builds the statue. He puts it on this very flat land mass, a plain, that all can see. Then he commands everyone in authority in his kingdom to come for a ceremony where they're going to worship and, and bow down and revere this idol. Kind of ulterior motives here. He wants to see who's loyal to him. He wants to begin unifying the, uh, the Babylonians so he can accomplish his purpose of superiority and expand his territories. So he calls everybody together. There are hundreds of people out here in this plain as they're starting the ceremony. And among those called are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they're in authority in his kingdom. So they're out there. Picture. And call, oh, I forgot one very important thing. The king also said everybody's commanded to come. And during the ceremony, when you hear the music play, you fall on the ground to worship the idol. And so everybody was commanded to do that, and he gave a little bit of an incentive. And if you don't do that, if you don't fall down and worship, you're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. So the ceremony begins. The music starts playing. Picture all these people immediately falling flat in a reverent position as flat as they can be, and there's three standing. Three. Meshach, Abednego, Meshach. Shadrach, thank you. I do that every time. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, so they're standing, and they are standing out. There's no doubt. Now, there's not a rebellion going here. There's not a protest going here. They're standing to honor their God and refusing to fall down and worship the idol. <clears throat> now, the king's counselors and the king's loyal people came over and told him about this. But I want to emphasize one point because I don't want you to lose that vision. Everybody falls down but three. They're standing out. I just was compelled to, for us to go into Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. You are the light, and this is Jesus' teaching to us. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. What a in, 
example, the three stood. We're to be standing out too from the rest of the world. We're to be a light of the world. We are called to reflect Jesus who lives within us. We are called that people, to people so that they would know that we believe. So our faith is personal, but not to be private. Like the three, people should know what we believe, and through our living testimony, that God is that God that we bring glory to God. I love this because you see the three standing there firmly for their God. Jesus calls us to do the same. And as we get deeper in this, we'll see that sometimes that can be a challenge for us. So, as we continue here in chapter 3, we find that Nebuchadnezzar is informed. And in verses 13 through 15, we get the king's kind of immediate, kind of what happens after he learns about this. I'm going to just summarize this one for us. So he's, the king's told, he summons uh, the three of them to him, and he's King Nebuchadnezzar. When you read the history, he is brutal. Off with your head at the, anybody that is against him or his kingdom. But what he does is he calls them in for a consultation. He actually, almost father-like, says, do you really understand what you're doing? Do you really understand what I'm asking you? Do you not realize I put you in a position of authority? I've given you so much favor. You've got to be misunderstanding this. I'm going to give you a second chance. And how? But he makes it clear, sorry. The ultimatum stands. If even your second chance, the music plays and you don't bow down, you go to the fiery furnace. And then because of who they are and what they stand for, he makes this comment to them. Verse 17, I mean, verse 15, sorry. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? So he elevates the disagreement to their God, reminding us of his arrogance and his belief that the Babylonians are superior and his gods are superior to their God. Now, how do they respond? Verses 16 through 18, and I'll read this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. What they're really saying is, we're guilty as charged. It doesn't matter. You can inquire. You can try to change our minds. We're guilty. You don't need to have a discussion with us about that. And if this be so, verse 17, meaning if you're going to throw us into the fiery furnace... You should know our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So what we find is they are clear in their response. They're not wavering at all, and they're in, their face, in the king's face, no matter how nice he was trying to be to them. 
And so, hold on one second. Kleenex, sorry. What we find in their response is they didn't need to debate it amongst themselves. They didn't need to evaluate the pros and cons, and maybe we can compromise here. They are firm. Now, why are they firm? Because they know that what they're being asked to do is a violation of the first of the two Ten Commandments. You shall have no other God before me, and you shall not make or worship or serve an idol. And they were being asked to do both. And so they were firm and they're clear, and I say that to us. When we know God's will, when we know God's commands, and we, make a, we are resolved in our heart to serve God and stand for him, we should be clear when we need to respond appropriately. And they were clear. So when you look at their response, I think it lays it out pretty well. They make it clear that God is sovereign. They have complete faith and trust. God will handle the situation. And they are willing to die. So now, I'm, and I say that because I just justified why they're so uh, adamant about standing there. Now for us, not everything we're going to be confronted with when we stand for God is life and death situations. Many times, we still will be put in pressurized situations. And let me give you a couple of examples of things I was just reading about in the last month or two. Football coach, high school, after every practice, took a knee and started praying. After every game, he took a knee and was praying. A lot of the players wanted to join him. That's when the heat started, and he ended up losing his job. I'm reading about some of the sports figures, and they are being asked to put rainbow paraphernalia on their uniforms. And many of them, as believers, are concerned about that. They're, they're, they will refuse to do it because it's in direct conflict in what their beliefs are. I just say these as real-life examples to us to pray about because the question, which is the title of the sermon, are we truly resolved to live for God? We may be put in fiery situations at times, and so will we stand? firm? And will we draw on the power of the Holy Spirit to help us not fall into traps, not to be offensive to God and lose our testimony? So something for all of us to ponder. Um, now, as we continue here, we go into verse 19 through 23, and we see that the king's response so they made a clear response to him. We're not changing. This is who we are. Here's the king's response. I'll summarize it. He basically was furious. Now they were considered the enemy. So he tells the group, stoke the fire in the furnace seven times hotter than it's ever been. And then he commands that they tie up and bind the three and get ready to throw them into the fiery furnace. 
And then he calls his mighty men, strong warriors, to throw them in. They open the door to the furnace. It burns the mighty men up and kills them. And the three fall into the fire. Wow. Now verse 24 and 25. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three bound men into the fire? And they answered and they said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, Say what? (laughs) But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So when he looks in... They're walking around. The fire burned their ropes, didn't burn them. They're unharmed. And then there's a fourth one that joins them that's obviously completely different looking than they are. And it is either God's angel or some believe the pre-incarnate Jesus was joining them. Regardless, God sent a protector. He sent, quote, a savior somebody to get them through the fire and protect them. And so I remind us, they're in the furnace. We're not going to be omitted from going into the furnace at times. We're going to still have in our life adversity. We're going to have challenges and trials. And we are going to even have satanic attacks at times things in our life. So we may be still put in the furnace, but the one thing that's apparent to me is when we're put there, our God is with us. Always remember to call on his name and to help us, whether it's we need wisdom or strength or peace or comfort, whatever the characteristic, call on God when we're put into the furnace. And so now, we go to verses 26 through 28. And Nebuch- I'm going to summarize. Well, no, I'm not. I'm going to read this. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges who their god is, that their god protected them, and that he's unlike any other god. He acknowledged their faith and their belief and their trust. So there's a great testimony to the goodness of God and to the faith of the three. So I go back to verse 27. Who's present? 
when it says satraps, prefects, governors, kings, counselors, many of the people that served in the capacity of authority of the, of the Babylonian king were there. I'm reminded that when we're obedient to God, we're called on mission with him, he empowers us, the end result would be that we also are a testimony to those unbelievers that are around and see. So remember, God is with us. God will get us through. But also remember the magnificence of what happens when we get through it. We're a testimony to unbelievers. So as we close today, um, it's... I'm just reminded of the life that they lived as a living testimony to us that we should be holy, set apart in this ungodly world. We should be a light that shines and brings the goodness of God apparent to the world. We should be active in the world. And I leave us with three points. And those three points are, we are a people called to be holy and we're living for God. We're to be resolved in our heart that we live for God. And with, I can't read, sorry. And with the help of the Holy Spirit that we will not be defiled. We are also to realize that as we live for God, we may be put in the furnace. But our God is with us. And never forget that. So let us close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful day. Thank you for this message. We, thank, we pray, Father, that we are so close to you that we are strengthened by your might and we're strengthened in such a wonderful way that you would just um, bless us and protect us. May we draw close to you and may we be a light into the world. In Jesus' name, amen.